You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome, everybody. I am absolutely thrilled to be sitting face-to-face with my friend Eric Resnick in his office in Denver to do this webcast. We, over the coming weeks and months, will figure out whether we stay on a Zoom format or whether we do more face-to-face. I was down in Las Vegas last week and did an interview with the CEO of MGM Resorts, uh, Bill Hornbuckle, and it was great to sit across on the stage with Bill, and we are going to broadcast that interview in the next couple of weeks on the Walker webcast. But Eric, thanks for joining me. It's yep. great to be in your office, and it's fun to be seeing you face-to-face rather than over a Zoom it's, call. It's so much better. It so, is so much better. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. So uh, let me do a quick introduction, then we'll dive into the discussion. Eric is the co-founder and CEO of KSL. Prior to forming KSL, Eric was an executive with Bale Associates. And prior to that, he was a consultant with McKinsey and Company. He currently serves as vice chairman of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Foundation and is a member of IREFAC, which is the Industry Real Estate Financing Advisory Council, the World Travel and Tourism Council, and the Real Estate Roundtable, which we both are privileged to be members of. He also serves on the University of Colorado Cancer Center Advisory Board. Eric holds a BA with distinction in mathematics and economics from Cornell University. So let's back up to that Cornell. You're a senior in high school trying to figure out what you're going to do and where you're going to go to college. Why'd you go to Cornell? There's a debate in my family over the answer to that. So my answer is my parents went to Cornell. I didn't do what kids do today and travel all over touring lots of different schools. They went there. I knew it was a great school. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and thought it would be a great place to go to school. My girlfriend at the time and I both applied and she got in and I didn't. I went to University of Virginia for my first semester of college. And then when I was visiting her, I had been waitlisted and given something that said, you could come your sophomore year if you had grades above a certain level. And I was visiting her that fall and loved the campus. Ithaca in the fall was beautiful, not so much in the winter, but, and I just, I really wanted to go there. At UVA was an incredible school, but it didn't feel as different coming from Northern Virginia where I lived and grew up as going to place like Cornell. And so I went to the admissions office and said, I wanted to go, but I wanted to start in January, not the following year, but they wouldn't wait if I was going to do it. So they said, okay. So I transferred. The girlfriend I broke up, but, um, but so my, my family tells me that I chased my girlfriend to Cornell. You know, we were broken up when I, when I went to Cornell, you know, and then we got back together and stuff. So they tease me about that all the time. But I went to Cornell really because, you know, they had a great math program, you know, which I wanted to study at the time. And, you know, I just really loved the place. And, and for me, it was kind of getting away from home and experiencing something different. Given you're now so deeply into the hospitality industry, did you take any courses in there, hospitality management? No, that's the funny thing. Yeah. No, I didn't. And at the time, you know, I would go to the Stadler Hotel, the hotel school. So I go for lunch. I had friends in the hotel school, and I just majoring in math and economics at the time. And I just I didn't have a lot of excess courses I could take. I regret it now because I would have loved to have done some classes at the in the hotel school, but I never did. And I really want to take wines. You know, I, I don't know anything about wine today, and they helped us famous wines class, we have to be 21 at the beginning of the semester to take it. And I turned 21, I graduated in December, so I graduated off cycle or year, whatever semester early. And I, I turned 21 in November, so I was never eligible to take the class. 
Um, so I, I wanted to take that one in particular, but yeah, no, I never did. I feel like I went to the hotel school now. Yeah, most of the people, sure. most of the people I know from Cornell in the industry, they all did. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did not. So you leave Cornell and go to McKinsey. Uh, why consulting? And were you in a certain practice group when you went into McKinsey, or were you just for the generalist? So I went, you know, I was a generalist. Um, I was a call business analyst for two years. And you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of college. And today, a lot of folks who join our firm and other firms like ours, it almost feels to me like they knew from high school that I want to, I want to get into private equity, real estate investing. I had no idea. And I just, you know, I, got, I ended up at McKinsey because I was walking through campus one day at Cornell with a friend and he was breaking off as I was going to my apartment. I thought we were going to go into an information session for this company, McKinsey. I was like, oh, who's that? He said, oh, they're a pretty cool company. Why don't you come and, and listen? And I went and I listened into the session. I was intrigued by what they said about what they do, like working with world's leading companies on these challenging problems and team environments, you know, getting involved in all aspects of the business. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll apply too. And so that year, he and I happened to be the two people who were hired. So I went to McKinsey and, you know, I otherwise was probably going to go to law school or public policy school. I had... Bob Blazer on the webcast a couple of weeks ago, and he and he was talking about how expert McKinsey is at creating this alumni network, and that when someone wants to leave McKinsey to go into industry, they almost not only promote it and help you yeah. do it, but kind of give you all the resources you need to either start up a company or go into it. Do you, as a McKinsey alum, does KSL or your portfolio other companies use McKinsey a lot because you've got sort of McKinsey in the back of your Yeah, mind? so it's funny. Um, we do now. And Denver is one of the fastest growing offices for McKinsey, which I get a kick out of. The Denver office is three times the size of the Washington, D.C. office, which is where I was at the time. And, um, and Denver didn't exist then. Denver, I think, started in the last 10 years. And so I don't think we hired them because of that connection. Though, I, Yeah, there's a certain amount. Like, I think it's pretty cool. The alumni network thing is really powerful, though. I still get calls today from recent McKinsey alums asking for career advice because they find my name on the alumni website. Right. Um, so, and, and I always admired, I think about this one, whenever people have gone on and left our firm, even though it's not quite the same, that you know, at McKinsey, every, every alum is a future client, right? I think is their attitude. And they treat their alums incredibly well, you know, continuing education, inviting to seminars. I mean, you know, they invited me to go on an office retreat, you know, a year after I left the office. I mean, and I always think about that as it's a small world and, you know, and these are people oriented businesses. And so, you know, that alumni network can be really powerful. So I think it's, 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 it's great for culture, for the firm, but it's also great for the business. So I, I, we've tried to mimic that in our own life. Were you working on something with Vail when you decided to leave McKinsey and go to Vail? Or what was no. it that took you from McKinsey to, to Vail? There's a, a guy who's sadly since passed away, but he was a, he was a senior director of McKinsey who was in the Washington, D.C. office. And everyone kind of knew this because, um, maybe I'll explain this for He had done a pro bono study for the U.S., what was at the time, I guess, the National Security Association, makes it well, still is, um, about how to grow a flat sport um, in, in skiing. And I was grew up skiing, loved skiing. I wasn't necessarily very good, but I was passionate about it. But my family did you know, every year we take a one week ski trip. And so Terry had a his name is Terry Williams. He had a case study that he used for training for um, you know McKinsey managers using the ski industry pro bono work that he did. It was kind of fun and interesting to people. And so I knew he had done that. And so we were talking about it in the hallway. And one day when I was kind of two years in, and it was a two-year program, so you're starting to think about what do you do next? He said, what do you think about doing? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, have you ever thought about combining your vocation with your avocation? And I looked at him. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you love skiing, right? I said, yeah. 
why don't you get a job in the ski business? I was like, there is a ski business? What is that? Like, what's the ski business? He said, yeah, well, look, I, I know some people from the study I did, which was in the mid-80s, and this is now the mid-90s, right? So 10 years removed. He said, I'll put you in touch with a couple of people. So he did, and that led to me going to Vail. So it, it, there was a McKinsey connection, but not because, you know, there was a study or any kind of bad thing done for Vail. But that, you know, his advice led to me talking to a fellow who, at the time, on Press Debut, and he put me in touch with... Andy Daly, who at the time was the president of Vail, and uh, they ended up hiring me. And so that's how I got to go. So I want to loop back to Vail, but I've got a, just a quick McKinsey senior partner story, which was that when I was graduating from business school, I got an offer from McKinsey, and they said, what office do you want to go to, which, as you know, is somewhat unique because they kind of give you um, offers yeah. from offices. And so I flew out to San Francisco, to the McKinsey San Francisco office, and went to hang out with a bunch of people who graduated from HBS the year before and it was nice and what have you. And so I got into the elevator and this, at that time to me, older man, probably about right, pro- pro- right. probably, probably our age now, now right? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, young guy, so young guy. Young guy. He gets on and he says, so how'd it go? Thinking that I was interviewing and I was, oh no, I've got an offer from you. I'm just trying to kind of kick the tires on the office. And he said to me, so what are you trying to figure out as far as what you're going to do? What other offers do you have? And I said, well, I've got some other consulting offers, I've got some banking offers, I've got some industry offers, this and that. He said, I got a question for you. Do you get the Sunday New York Times? I said, I do. He said, what's the first section you read? I said, front page. He goes, what's second? I go, business. He goes, what's third? I said, probably style. He goes, what's fourth? I go, outlook. He goes, do you ever get to the crossword puzzle? And I go, no, I hate crossword puzzles. And we're going down in the Transamerica building in in San Francisco. This is all happening in the elevator. And he looks at me and he goes, you look like someone who likes to do things. Don't be a consultant. Go do something. And the doors opened up, Eric. He walks out and heads his way. And I literally called McKinsey and Bain and said, thanks, I'm not coming to you to go consult. And, oh, but you know who he was, not he? So a number of McKinsey people have told me who he is. He's some iconic partner in the San Francisco office. Some people who work there have told me his name. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. But so it was a senior partner basically convinced you not to go. Not to go. And honestly, <laughs> it was wild how he kind of assessed yeah. me just going down uh, the, the elevator. Literally the elevator pitch. Right? You got it. That's so great. you joined Vail. Were they owned by Apollo at the time? They were. They were. Yeah. So you were going into sort of a, if you will, a leverage buyout at that time. Yes. Which it, with, it, with hindsight is great. You know, it was a great experience. I had no idea. Right. You know, I was completely ignorant. And so I went. I'm guessing I didn't realize Apollo was involved until I actually started the job. Yeah. And maybe, maybe in between interviewing and starting. And, and was uh, Adam Aaron there as CEO at that time? Not quite. So I started in uh, May. And um, I thought it was really cool, or late April, and they, they put me up in the Hyatt Beaver Creek for two weeks. I'm like, oh, it's great. I was skiing and stuff. Little did I know, Beaver Creek closed the weekend before. Everything in Beaver Creek is closed. I got a nice room at the Hyatt, but that was all I had. So I, I started in, in like late April and May. That's why I remember that. And Adam started in July. So he, he was just coming aboard. And the first week I started, we started working on the acquisition of Keystone and Breckenridge that, that ultimately kind of formed the basis of what Bell Resources today. And, then we went public the next year. So I started working closely with Apollo on the acquisition and then ultimately the IPO and, and beyond that. But I, I, but so Apollo was involved, but I really didn't know it. And you ran strategic planning as well as investor relations. So you got a good sense while you were there, both from how are we growing this enterprise and M&A, and then also on the IR side of taking the company public and managing with investors. Yeah, and the other thing I had was operational finance. Your, what we call FP&A today, financial planning and analysis, so budgeting, forecasting. And that was actually, in some respects of all that I did, that was the most valuable to me. 
did I learn, you know, how does the business actually work, right? What are the challenges associated with, with running, you know, ski schools, retail, hotels, the ski mountain itself, the golf course, or whatever it might be. And so that was actually probably more valuable to me than, you know, working with Wall Street and doing the m and strategy stuff. So what was it that got you and Mike Shannon to think about starting up a private equity firm that was focused on travel and leisure? So in between those two things, what happened was Mike called me. And I had known about Mike because Mike, Mike was the president of Bell Associates from 85 to 92. I was there in 96 to 2000. He called me and, and asked if I'd be interested in joining KSL as a CFO. And KSL was part of KKR at the time. It was a and, and that at that point, I, I, I knew that, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, knew I, was doing private I mean, only a little bit. I mean, you know, but a little. And I knew enough to read Barbarians at the Gate before I had to interview with Henry Kravis, which shows you how small KKR was because at the time, Henry had to interview me as a CFO of a portfolio company. I, you know, that, that certainly would happen today, I'm sure, appropriately so. So Mike called and I joined, ultimately, you know, that led to me joining KSL with Mike as CFO. And... You know, for five, uh, it was uh, early 01, January 01. And then um, we kind of continued to build up that platform, sold, our, sold most of our assets in 04 or 05. And it was then that Mike and I thought about, okay, we've, kind of, we've, we've had a successful, at that point, 12-year run for Mike with KKR. And we thought about, do we want to kind of re-up and do this again with KKR, or do we want to do something different with ourselves? And you know, a few outside advisors and a few of the folks, including our, our CIO now, Peter McDermott, who lives across the street from you, were kind of advising, look, you know, you guys, you guys could raise your own fund. And we had gotten to know some of KKR's uh, large LPs um, through hosting their annual meetings because we have had these large resorts we host the annual meetings. And so we talked to a couple of those LPs and they said, yeah, we'd be interested in backing you. So that led, that gave us the confidence to raise our own fund. That was our fund, row six. Um, so, you know, we had always done travel, leisure, recreation, right? Mike came out of Vail. You know, five years before I came out of Vail, then we did golf resorts, we did uh, beach resorts, you know, with KKR. And so we had kind of developed this operating expertise and investment expertise. And that was what was unique about us is our heritage, operations, right? We didn't come at it from having been on Wall Street, neither Mike or I, you know, ever worked on Wall Street. And then became your operators in the ski business, so to speak. And so we started with that, and then we became investors. We kind of vertically integrated up the financial I guess, food chain, so to speak, to kind of move towards the owner's box in raising our own funds. So to us, travel and leisure was just the natural thing to focus on because it's what we were passionate about. It's what we had always done. It goes back to what Terry Williams told me about combining vocation and navigation. And so KSL, we're now 16 years since you and Mike started it. How big is KSL now? I mean, so what would be most recent fund? Yeah, so I, mean, I guess we grew people. from zero. You know, I guess we started with five people and we raised um, a billion dollars. We, I think we, we said your we, first fund was a billion bucks. First fund was a billion dollars. We said those are some good relationships with those institutions. Yeah, yeah. That, no, we were, we, were, we were very fortunate. And, you know, we, we decided if we could raise 400 million, if we thought we could raise 400 million, we would raise the fund. We thought we could. We ended up being convinced by an outside advisor to target 750, not 400. And we had a hard cap of a billion and we hit it, which I tend to think in life, if you, you know, sometimes you're better off not knowing how daunting something is. Mm-hmm. I mean, today, if I were just advising someone in the same position, and they said I wanted to raise a billion dollar first time fund, I would say, boy, that's really, really hard. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you should do that, right? You know, and we didn't know what we didn't know, and we were very fortunate. And the um, today, you know, think about growth. We went from five people, now we have about 105. I think by the end of the year, we're well, 120, and we have about 15 billion kind of cumulative assets we've raised over time. And 
probably have 35 different businesses we own today and you know, 50 or 60 different businesses that we went to. We have a large lending operation now as well. So let's predominantly focus on the side of those assets that you own, whether it's operating companies or actual assets. So on hospitality, it's been a, it's been a tough run during the pandemic for hospitality assets. Yeah. So wind the clock back to sort of March of 2020. And, Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> well, this conversation is very different today than it was back then. Yeah. Um, but obviously heading into that, everything shuts down and you all are, you know, focused predominantly in a sector of the economy basically it was like no one's traveling no one's going anywhere i mean when i was yeah. last week with bill hornbuckle at mgm he gave the stat that he went from sixty-five thousand employees at mgm to 12 in the course of a couple months so i'm assuming your portfolio companies just you know hunkered in and and, and locked down i mean i've never seen something like it in, in my career i hope i never see something like it again you know being solely focused on travel we have about 100,000 employees, and more than 90% of those employees, including that's including all of our portfolio companies, of course, have had to sacrifice in some way. Temporary furlough, you know, that Bill was referring to, salary reductions, hour reductions, you know, whatever it might be, but you know, 90% or more had financial hardship as a result of COVID directly from, you know, because we had to cut back. We closed, 90% of our businesses were closed. We had a couple of businesses that were deemed essential. We owned FBOs at airports that had to stay open to serve aviation. But but 90% of what we did is, was closed in the second quarter of 2000. And we, we were operating assets, you know, after 9-11 when you know, flights shut down in, in Hawaii. No one's ever driven to Hawaii as far as I know. And, you know, and, and basically we went from 90% occupancy to 9% September of 01 to October of 01. It's hard to believe that the tragedy was 20 years ago now. But we thought that was unconscionable no matter what happened. Now, it came back quickly when flights started back up and people felt comfortable traveling again. But this, to go on the way it did and to be global, we now have businesses across the globe and you know, 90% of our businesses were all closed and the employees were furloughed and, and had reduced you know, compensation and various things. It's terrible. So I, you know, it's remarkable. You know, that time last year, understandably, you know, we had people who were questioning whether we would survive. Right? And I didn't question that at the time, but I probably should have, because you're, you're kind of in a crisis mindset. It. It's good to know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, sometimes right. It's not right. Sometimes it's good not to know. And I don't watch it just as an aside to that. I don't watch our stock price. I stopped watching our stock price four years ago and only what well, it's it. done really well since Thank you. And I mean, only, in case you didn't know. only look at it two days after earnings. Uh, but what was super helpful was a year ago when our stock went from 75 bucks a share to 25 bucks a share. Yeah. I didn't watch it do that. Yeah. And other than a friend of mine in a private equity firm calling me when it was at $25 a share, asking if he could help me. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, yeah. and I said to him, hey, Chuck, calling me at 25 bucks a share is not helping me. Right, okay. right, um, right. But uh, at the end of the day, it, that that what you don't know often helps you a lot it as it relates to you know what we we were operating our numb as if we were going to continue to operate. And guess what? As you well know, our stock price had nothing to do with our ability to weather the storm. And so it was good that I wasn't distracted by that watching this red arrow going down. Yeah, it, it's it's important to be able to kind of maintain your view on kind of the horizon. Where, where am I trying to get to? Right. And if you just look at you know a step in front of you at times, it can be disorienting. And you can lose your way, right? I mean, it's, it's easy. If I'm looking straight down, I can easily end up walking backwards without realizing it, you know, versus if I'm looking, looking in the distance. So it was helpful, I think. Accidental, probably, but, but helpful. And to think about where we are now, you know, as if last year was about surviving. And this year now, you know, we're thriving, right? 
others, obviously some pickups out there on the horizon with Delta and so forth. But it's been a remarkable, I've never, I've never been more proud of our team, teams, you know, each one of our businesses, than how they too kind of, they soldiered on through COVID and they were incredibly responsive to, you know, protecting our people, protecting our liquidity, and protecting our, our ability to go on the offense. And, and when was it critical. when was it, Eric, that you felt it shift from, if you will, defense to offense? Like was there a, a moment where you either saw, I don't know, occupancy in an asset or returns coming back where it was July of last year, it was October of last year, all of a sudden it was like, okay, we're not only going to survive this thing, it might be the opportunity for us to get on offense. So it's interesting. So we, we never had a moment where we weren't on offense, at least for so March 13th, plus or minus, we all shut down, right? Plus or minus a few days. And by the end of March, you started to walk a webcast. <laughs> we, we, we weren't savvy enough to do that, but but we started kind of regular calls with our investors once a month, once for six weeks. You know, my philosophy has always been, you know, communication is really important. Those problems in the world stem from poor communication. But when things are bad, communication is like triply important. And so by the end of March, and, and to me, communicating outwardly forces you, like writing things down, forces you to kind of like get your act together and have a plan. And so we developed kind of a philosophy, you know, very quickly kind of by the end of March that said, you know, we, we have three protection priorities, the ones I just mentioned, protecting our people first, our liquidity second, and our opportunity, our future opportunities third. The first two were all about defense, and the third is about offense. And now how much we weighted those in those beginning days you know, we were 85% defense, but we were still 15% offense. We were buying stocks and we were buying debt securities, right? Which had the temporary impact. Looking back, I wish we bought even more, but but we, you know, we invested $300 million in, in public equities and you know, probably not the same amount of debt in public securities, kind of towards the bottom, March, April, May. And so we were we were always trying to balance defense and offense because we knew from the past, we said, look, travel's resilient, leisure travel in particular is resilient. People will come back. And at the time, we thought that was going to be three to four years to get back to priority for leisure and another couple of years beyond that for corporate. Um, we moved those, those kind of planning cases in now a couple of years with the vaccine. Um, but we started off with that defensive positioning. And I think we probably were still like 70, 80% defense, probably up until the vaccine. Um, and, and then I think we shifted to be 70 to 80% offense. And today we're probably 85% offense and 15% defense. I mean, I'm making up the numbers in the direction. And you have assets, not only all over the globe, but you have what I would call urban infill hospitality or mm -hmm. hotels in big major cities in Nashville and Dallas and, and, and other cities um, that typically are focused on the business community. And then you have these destination resorts and beautiful places where people that away and hunker down. Um, I'm assuming that's almost been a tale of two worlds in the sense that the returns on those urban assets have been flailing since sort of the beginning of the pandemic and haven't fully recovered. And that your hospitality on destination resorts, you don't have enough rooms and you can push rents as high as you can yeah. possibly imagine. Talk about that a little bit. No, I, look, I think you're directionally right. You know, the corporate recovery is, is definitely muted. We actually have seen signs. I mean, you, you look in the last, uh, even the last month, we're probably back to uh, circa 80% of 2019 levels in terms of booking activity for corporations, 70 to 80. And we were 90% or so pre-Delta. So, you know, it's gotten down to Delta, but we were like 20% beginning of the year, right? So it's risen, say 20 to 90 back to 60 or 70, 70 
but directionally you're right. I mean, you almost can't charge enough uh, and you can't have enough hotel rooms on the leisure side, especially drive to leisure. Um, and on the corporate side, I don't want to say you can't give the rooms away. It's better than that. That's certainly what it was, you know, before January, February, March of this year, but it's definitely much weaker. Fortunately for us, we were positioned on the equity side of our business, 90% leisure going into COVID. And that was deliberate. And have you found buying opportunities on the corporate side in the sense of, yeah. have you sat there and said, okay, this isn't going to last forever. There's somebody who wants to sell a hospitality asset, a yeah. ACAT, and we'll buy it? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been buying, we've been very active buying select service hotels recently. You know, uh, you know, as an example, kind of onesies and twosies and aggregating them into a new platform. We have published in hospitality. That's, that's run by one of our, uh, our one of our former execs, Greg We're, you know, under, you know, LOI right now on a large portfolio of urban hotels in Europe. And so that's a place where people aren't chasing as much, right? On the leisure side, values are, I mean, they're back. They're, they're above priority. We've actually announced a few, you know, a few exits recently that I certainly, you know, a year ago, I wouldn't have thought would happen until 23. We'll close several transactions this year. But on the corporate side, you know, there, look, corporate travel will come back, right? This connection in person, right, is far better than doing over Zoom, just like you started with. And people will realize that. And the competitive juices will flow. Once, you know, someone who's doing sales, you know, whatever business, right, they get a new client because they went to meet in person, what's their competitor going to do? What's the other salesperson in their business going to do? Well, they're going to go travel too. And so it's just going to take more time. Corporate groups were even starting to come back this fall before Delta, right? They've now, you know, fallen off, but it showed you that there's pent up demand people get together. And if anything, remote work is going to increase traditional corporate travel because in lieu of going to the office, Businesses are going to bring people together for more off-sites and those types of things. That's a really interesting thought. I hadn't heard that, and that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So it's just going to take time. Why so we see there being more time to do something yes. unique, not convenient just because it's another day at the office. Right. So we see opportunity in both sectors right now. Leisure is the only thing that stops us from investing more leisure right now is price. And you know, there's a little less competition when you're doing smaller assets, when you're in some geographies that aren't quite institutional. Um, and also So you also are an investor in where you own holiday and vacations that timeshare. Vacation clubs. Vacation yeah. club. We're an talk investor in it. We don't, we, don't, we don't control it. So uh, talk about that, because I am assuming with, I think there's something between six and seven trillion dollars of excess deposits in the U.S. banking system right now. And everyone is buying, as we have both know, you can't buy a bicycle today, you can't buy yeah. a car today. Everyone's a, right. I would assume that that business has also benefited from people saying, I'm going to spend more time with my family. I'm going to go vacation. I want to buy a, a timeshare. It has. I mean, that business is a, you know, that business, people are really, they're prepaying for future vacations, right? That's what it's about. It's not a real estate investment as, as much as it's investing in, in your vacation time, right? If I, if I prepay for this vacation, we're going to use it, right? And, and it's easier for me to bring friends and family along because we've already bought it. So there's, you know, you don't have the same tension of, are we, where are we going? Are we splitting the bill? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of motivations for people to buy timeshare. They're different than buying traditional second, say second home real estate. And it's more affordable, but it's less of an investment per se. And what we see now because of the high disposable income and high savings rates that you're referencing um, is we absolutely, we've seen a, a return the, in the industry as a whole and certainly holiday and club vacations, which is the business we've invested. I've seen it too, you know, a return of a vacation activity and what comes with that is a return to touring vaca uh, vacation club properties and then converting those tours into new members and, and upgrades of existing members. And people want to vacation more, so they upgrade. People want to you know, pre-commit to their future vacations, so they buy a membership. And so we have seen that increase. Pre-Delta, you know, there was a pretty material increase over 2019. And with Delta, you know, the combination of Delta, 
and you know hurricanes in the southeast and you know and those types of things you know you've seen some impacts and noise in the numbers over the last month but the industry is really quite healthy for the exact reasons you speculate so you've just gone under contract i think to sell apples yes apple leisure apple leisure if you want to talk about apple leisure talk about it but the question i have from that is you bought that business yeah. with kkr from me yeah. And so here we have three private equity firms, one that had had it for a period of time, two others come in. What is it in the private equity? I totally get that there's a company that needs private equity to get it, if you will, from point A to point B, right. either go public or from why point not, A to point B. Why buy B. another sponsor's deal? Exactly. Why buy another sponsor's deal? What made us nervous, I mean, going into it made us nervous. We looked at it when Bain bought it, and unfortunately, we didn't buy it then because Bain did really well with it. So we would have loved to have owned it earlier. And my next door neighbor uh, is a, a senior Bain exec. And, and so we chatted a little bit about this because I was nervous buying them. They're, they're a very savvy investment firm. And we just felt that the trends around Americans, Canadians, and to a degree Europeans traveling to Mexico and the Caribbean with the quality of the beaches, the environment, the service, the culture um, was the, the value proposition from that travel was so strong that you know, you were gonna, there were great tailwinds in the industry. And we had tried to buy a couple of other platforms in Mexico and the Caribbean. Uh, one of our partners, Rich Weissman, you know, led his for us and did a great job. And what we kept bumping up against is now we thought that we like that platform, we like that platform. Maybe we didn't get there in price or whatever it was. We were learning about the business along the way. Um, and what we kept on hearing was Apple are the best operators in the region. So if you do a deal with Apple, you should do a deal with Apple. But we had missed it in Bain. So it was already, you know, it, was, it was gone. So when it came back around and Bain was selling it, you know, in our minds, you know, we knew that Apple was. You know, we thought the best company, the best travel business you know, in those regions. And so we were really tempted to buy it. And we had to get over the, what you're buying from Bain. And we, we just really felt that there was enough tailwinds and the management team was really strong. We believed in the plan. And frankly, having our focus be solely travel and leisure, you know, we bring something a little bit unique to the table that other investors were very smart, successful. They don't have the same tie-ins with all the other businesses, the same perspective of the sector globally, perhaps. And so, you know, we felt that we could add value. You know, and one example of that was we were looking at buying a small, a small hotel operator in Spain um, from our European office, called Alula Hotels at the time. Great business. And instead of buying it on a standalone basis, we ended up, Apple was like, look, we think that would make a lot of sense for us. We talked a little about it. We agreed, KKR agreed. So we merged it into Apple instead. And they now have 100 hotels to take in the pipeline in Spain. And when and high and for Hayek, who's now buying it as a strategic, right. you know, they see the same thing that we saw. And now they see a bigger footprint. They see an expansion into Europe. They see multiple brands that they can continue to grow. And partnering with their, you know, their their world of Hayek you know, loyalty program, you know, they see there being a tremendous you know, synergy from that. And we had previously done a deal with Hayek where they had bought Miraval hotels or Miraval, Miraval Spa from us or so the luxury uh, spa operator they're now rolling out and so we had a really good relationship with their ceo and that that led to you know, this transaction so we were nervous about exactly what you asked but we felt that there's there's more that we could bring to the table um and i think the proof has been in the pudding because the exit was very successful for us and i think frankly the business is going to be that much more successful for hyatt just like it was more successful for us than it was for Bing. i mean they did phenomenally well yeah. but we did well too is what i mean and um so i i think you have to be careful when you buy a spot another sponsor's deal but it doesn't mean it's always the wrong you mentioned spain uh you have a bunch of assets over in europe you also have a number of assets down in in the asia pacific in 
beautiful places like Maldives and Fiji and yeah. other places. How is that market done given that high end, you, you said if you can drive there, it's done exceedingly well. Yeah. What happens when you need to get on a 14 hour flight to yeah. Hong Kong and transfer planes? So it's interesting. It's all about, about cross border restrictions. And so if you look at like our assets in the Maldives, for example, uh, we own Sineva Fushi, or we own part of Sineva Fushi, Sineva Chani, with a wonderful partner who founded that business. The Maldives opened for travel quite quickly. And by the nature of having one hotel on one island, which is kind of the way the Maldives generally works, and not dense at all, you know, just spectacular locations, it was relatively easy to have a contained environment. All your employees are living on the island. You're testing everybody before they come onto the island. You're doing you know, rigorous protocols while on island, both in terms of you know, masking, social distancing, or sorry, Actually, they did not do masking, social distancing, and, and regular testing. They basically tried to create a COVID-free environment within each island. And it really worked. Most of the cases there have been in Mali, which is their, their capital. But on the individual island, it's really worked. And so what we actually saw is, I mean, our, our profit is going to be 2 to 3x in the Maldives this year what it was pre-COVID. So 2021 versus 2019. 2021 versus 19. Yeah. And it's because... Look, it's kind of it's a very unique Eric as it relates to the clients. In other words, if it was sixty percent Americans and forty percent other, is does is that state or is that all more Asian? So, it's, so it's, it's the most internationally diverse market I've ever seen. Huh. So you know you have you know China was the biggest market and they're largely not traveling, but you have Russians, Brits, Germans, Austrians, um, folks in the UAE and Middle East, Indians, Americans, and. You know, they're all kind of five to ten percent markets, and they're such in our case, they're such unique properties. People were willing to do the long plane flight because once they were there, and some people stayed for three months, you know, so it's remarkable. I mean, our, our sign, sign me up for yeah, I, your resorts for me, three months. Yeah, in the me, me too. I can't wait for the day that me I too. Go do that. Yeah, unfortunately, my, my partner who leads that investment, he went to the Maldives from New York for like for like a day yeah. for two days. That's not the way to go. The three right. month thing that that's a much better way to do it. Yeah. But enough of the, my point is, enough of those markets were open, right? And it is, the pull was so strong that we were able to offset the markets that were geographically close to us. But so, for instance, you also are an investor in a company in New Zealand, which is this really cool kind of what looks like a what's it called? Uh, Bailey Rod. Bailey Rod. It's Australia and New Zealand actually. It's amazing, but you can't get there, right? No, you can't. So that's been more challenging. Although interestingly, there's such a strong normally such a strong outbound tourism market from Australia and New Zealand that since they can't leave, they're doing more staycations. So once the Tasman bubble opened and once their lockdown stopped, now they're still, they go up and down. Um, there was a lot of desire for people to explore their own country. So we benefited from that, but no, net, it's been, it's been challenging there. Same thing with Canada. You know, when the borders are closed, you run an international business, it's a problem. So we're, you know, fortunately we don't have too much of that, but I'm confident that when the border opens there and I, soon, but it might not be for a year, the pent-up demand to travel to Australia and New Zealand will be off the charts. And so we've actually been acquiring and adding properties going to the, or protecting our opportunity set. We've been adding to our collection of properties in Australia and New Zealand during this time. Here. And you also have a cruise company down this Formally, yeah. Oh, formally, so you're out of that. Formally, we're out of that. Okay, yeah, so you're right. are you, I'm assuming you're happy to be out of the cruise business right now. Uh, yeah, I think, right, yeah, probably that, that would have been, it's probably the only business in the world that would have been maybe more stressful than what we have. But even there, I think, look, bookings for cruise in 22 were really strong. People rebook from what they canceled in 2021. Uh, you know, it, it will come back. There's a very compelling value proposition to cruising, um, the convenience of seeing multiple ports. Um, you know, especially with an aging population, is it, pretty overpowering. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it certainly 
I was probably happy not to deal with the stress of a cruise line over the last couple of years. So you invested in a couple of what I would call emerging concepts in the hospitality space. One is open canvas. Under canvas. Under canvas. Under canvas. Yeah. I guess you're probably happy that it's under canvas and not open canvas. Um, although some of the ones that I looked at do actually have these they have, wonderful they have skylights, they have skylights and, yeah. and then you look up at the yeah, stars. There are really neat places like Moab and, and, and yeah. other really remote places. How's I mean, I'm assuming that that's been a did that come about just because of the pandemic or no. were already there No, we, we you know that I mean that that's by blind luck, but I mean there's there's probably no better travel business during COVID than national park oriented glamping resorts. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're just you're in your tent, you're spread out from people. You know, these are kind of a lot of people doing road trips. People were driving 20 hours. Right. People used to fly from Chicago to Moab, you know, or Yellowstone. We're now driving right yeah. now COVID. But the value proposition was so strong. I've never I've never seen this in my life where we lost literally all of our bookings between March and May of last year. Just really a summer seasonal business primarily. We lost all of our bookings. We thought we were going to have a great summer. We thought we had nothing. And we thought the business was worth 30 cents on the dollar. You know, at the time, we were scared about it. They thought it might be terrible. And then we saw people starting to drive in June. And we had record profitability last year. And then this year, we've had record profitability again. And we added two new camps this year. And now we're at, you know, at triple the levels of EBITDA we were pre-COVID. Uh, we've added 20% new units. We're going to add you know 20% next year. And, Probably continue that growth. We just actually sold a small minority stake in it. And, you know, a very attractive value. You know, the, a remarkable turnaround. It's an amazing experience. And for those who, my family knows I'm not a camper by by uh, by trading uh, or by background, but this is camping I would do. Yeah. Um, it's more. It's, it's we've got some ultra luxury glamping sites in, in daily lodges actually in Australia, and Canada. This is kind of a really great experience. But it's not. It's not ultra luxury. The price point's much more attainable. But you know, it's you know four hundred dollars. I was like, I'm taking the family in Moab. Well, mean, we're, we're, we're adding a second camp in Moab. I'm assuming you can't even get a reservation, even if I call them up and tell them I'm a friend of yours. Well, I, you know, I, that won't help. That doesn't help anywhere. But I can introduce you to some people who can probably help you out. But we're adding a second camp in Moab and a new one in Bryce next year. Yeah, so I, I mean, saw the Bryce Canyon. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, Utah's a wonderful vacation destination. And so we, we, we've expanded. I think we will have uh, five, uh, five sites there next year. So you also are an investor in health clubs, both in the UK as well as in the States. In the States, you've got an investment in Bay Clubs uh, out in California. Used um, to. Now we're a lender, but we used to own it. Okay. What's your take on that whole sort of health club fitness as we've now, you know, obviously clamp lockdown, everyone buys their Peloton, Peloton yeah. surges. Yeah, now all of a sudden, sure. um, I was actually talking to my friend, Brian Grady, who runs uh, Lifetime yeah. Fitness this past weekend. He's, uh, uh, you know, weathered the storm and thinks yeah. that there's an opportunity now for a lifetime to go and really surge forward. Yeah. What's your take on the at-home versus club fitness space and what KSL is looking for for investments? So we've, we've surveyed this a lot. We do a lot of kind of proprietary customer research in our sectors. And we made, you made two fitness investments this year. We made a large investment into the largest franchisee of, of Orange Deary locations. And we um, bought a controlling interest in a company called Third Space, which is to the kind of the, the highest end health clubs in London. And and then we, we own a fitness business kind of that's integrated into our hotel business called Village Hotels that have their own fitness clubs with 100,000 members across the UK. And then the one you referenced, the Bay Club company um, in the Bay Area. The surge of the home fitness is, is not going to go away, but for most people, 
that doesn't take the place of joining a gym. Just like for most people, going and doing you know, Orange Theory or using class pass to do different classes doesn't take the place of a gym. It tends to supplement each other. There are examples where there's cannibalization, but the available market's still pretty large for fitness. You know, and you know, we're back, depends on where we are now in our businesses, but we're back to 70 to 90% of prior peak membership levels in our fitness businesses. And so we feel really good that it's a core part of people's lifestyle. Working out on Peloton's great. It's lonely working out in your home gym all the time. Oh, yeah. Most people, you know, I mean, I tend to work out in my own home gym, but most people want the social aspect. I'm probably more embarrassed to work out around others. Most people get energized by the, the social aspect of being in a gym environment or a class environment. So, you know, our thesis is it will come back. It will just take a little longer. It's a little bit more like corporate travel. You'll be there, but it'll just take a little longer. It'll come back quicker than corporate travel overall, but it's it's not it's not like under canvas in terms of the drive to leisure. But you know, we think that industry is not going to go the way the buggy one. You know, we think that there's strong concepts, right? The Baker Company, Lifetime, frankly. Right? You know, Orange Theory, you know, what in third space in London, you know, Equinox in New York City. You know, we think those concepts will they'll be strong, they, they will come back strong. Will they have distress? It's a question of what their capital structure is because a lot of them are still losing money. Two other retail concepts that you've invested in recently. Um, one is a, a restaurant business uh, based out of Austin, Texas. And the other is Dry Bar. Yeah. Um, talk to me about Dry Bar and going to the beauty salon because obviously that shut down in the pandemic. Yeah. Are you seeing just an incredible resurgence of, of women wanting to go and get their hair done and, and hanging out in Dry Bar? But I don't, we are. I don't understand the Dry Bar concept versus just going to a beauty salon. Is there something unique about being at a dry bar? You've got good hair, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you'd be a good customer for us. Uh, you know, admittedly, you're not our core demographic, you know, but it, it tends to be, you know, 90% plus women. So we have a business called Wellbiz, which is um, it's a multi-franchise business company that focuses on health and wellness, or health, beauty, and wellness. Um, so we are, we're the franchisor, and then, you know, we're, and we're the master franchisor, um, and then building out these brands. So Dry Bar was one that we recently bought. Business. We, we have an eyelash extension business. We have a day spa business. And we have a personal training studio business, all within that within that company. And so we're trying to add, you know, kind of leading brands, you know, in health, beauty, and, and wellness because we see the trends toward investing in yourself, right? Whether it be on the fitness side or the beauty side, are so strong. The tailwinds in that sector are so strong. Now, Drive Bar, we had a unique opportunity there. The business was about the hair dryers, and the business was about the, the salons. Right. And they had a great product in the salons. They had a great hair dryer product. They sold that to a third party. And then they had a bit of a subscale business remaining on the, the dry bars themselves, which were actually what created the kind of energy around the brand. But it was hard to run that on a standalone basis. So putting that into Wellbiz made a lot of sense. And what we see there is it's a bet for us, an investment on the resurgence of people doing events and people going to the office. And they have a great model. Where you, know, you come, it's relaxing, it's fun, it's social. Have a glass of champagne, you know, have a have a blowout. I'm sure my team is watching and laughing me at me describing this business right now. Um, I'm impressed. You don't don't, don't ask. Don't, please don't ask my no, any. Like please don't ask my any of the other beauty yeah, businesses. Yeah. This is as far as I can go. But it's a social experience, and what we see overall is people are less and less about material things in their life, and they're more about experiences, right? And driver made an experience out of getting your hair done, right? It's not just going to a salon and having your hair cut. It's a social experience as well. You, know, you go with a group of friends before you go to, you know, an event. Now the business hasn't rebounded as strongly as our, as like our massage business and you know some of our other franchise businesses because people aren't going to 
events and the office in scale yet, right? But even Dry Bar, you know, we're back within spitting distance of, of kind of pre-COVID levels. And our other franchise businesses in the aggregate are up kind of 10% over pre-COVID levels. So we know it will come and, you know, and we think it's a brand that can expand and expand globally. Um, it's a great concept. You know, my, my, my two daughters, 18 to 20, and my wife, you know, they really enjoy it. You know, I'm probably not the customer, but it's, it's, it's a great business. It fits really well with our strategy. So I say, at least in my world, the best for last, which is skiing because you and I both love skiing and you all bought Altera. Well, you bought Interwest yeah. a number of years ago and then rebranded Altera and yeah. you're now the second largest ski operator in the world. Skiing 2020, 2021 ski season was a real challenge as it relates to yeah. how many people go on the mountain, how are we going to social yeah. distance, how do you do the passes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm assuming the outlook for the winter 2021, 2022 is looking fantastic because everyone wants to be outside. And last winter was a huge success, correct? I mean, all things considered. Yeah, all things considered, last winter was a huge success. We had the fifth most skier visits in history last year, which is pretty remarkable. The drive through visits were way up. The destination visits were down. Those do tend to be the more profitable ones. So, I mean, you know, it's not that everyone had record profitability, but I live in the mountains. And what an incredible gift during COVID to be able to be out on a mountain, put aside whether you're wearing a mask and the lift line and, and on the lift. And the restaurants are, you know, limited and all those things. To be on the mountain last year was the best gift that I think anyone could have. And so there's tremendous momentum going into the ski season. Look, I, I had hoped we would be completely done with all things COVID by now, but we're not. Hopefully we get there. I think you'll see less impact this year in terms of the restrictions, reservations. They may not be non-existent, but they'll be much less. Um, restaurants, I think, will be much more open in a traditional manner. Yes, you'll probably still be wearing masks when you're not at your table, I'm guessing. I think we learned how to operate last year, and it was a little bit trial by fire. This year, it'll be much more well-owned. Um, I think, frankly, the bigger challenge for our industry is not demand right now for skiing or other businesses. It's labor. Right? I mean, it's, it's hard to hire people. Right? Um, but I suspect that will ease as we come into the, into the winter as well. So no, I'm, I'm very bullish about what the ski season holds. When we did our summer conference up in Sun Valley this summer, they came to me at the beginning where you had 400 people come out, and they said just you know, kind of be patient with us because yeah. we typically have 300 summer employees on JV season. We couldn't get them and we only have 40. And so they were down by 260 people yeah. at Sun Valley this summer. Yeah. And so at the beginning of the conference, I said to everyone, if your room service doesn't arrive exactly on time, just take a deep breath. We are trying to kind of dig out of this. Yeah, I think, look, I think last year especially, people were very, they were so happy just to be able to go outside and to do these activities, whether it was going golfing or skiing or visiting a going glamping, whatever. They, they were very accepting and patient. I hope, I sense we're becoming a little less patient now. I hope that we can maintain that patience because we're going to need it for a little while longer. Talk about Icon versus Epic because clearly the two major operators and owners of real scale, you have 28 resorts? We own 15 and we have about 45 in the network. Okay. We just and added like Kitzbühel and Quirkina in Europe. Oh, that's neat. Um, but here in the U.S., the Icon Pass and the Epic Pass have really, from an outsider's perspective, really consolidated 
Altera and Vail as the two major players in this kind of competition between yeah. the two of, right? I mean, you know, my family, uh, it's always a debate about, are we doing Icon or are we doing Epic? I fear of hearing the wrong so answer. I, get, I actually get a pass on this because you're on the board of the U.S. ski team. You know, you're on the board of the U.S. ski team and I actually get a gold pass from the U.S. ski team. So I get to, I get to be in your good graces <laughs> because I donate to the U.S. ski team. Get uh, we, we, but, and we appreciate that. But on that, it sort of changed the whole nature of the ski industry. It used to be like, let's charge little for the season pass and a lot for the day pass because we want to kind of gouge the day person. And now it's completely shifted to, let's get them bought into a long-term pass because we're going to keep getting them coming back. And so it's almost like you can't get a day pass to go ski at one of these places. You almost have to be a member of either Icon or Epic. Directionally, certainly like the pricing model of the day ticket versus the season pass very much encourages people to get a season pass. I like the word you use, say member, right? And I actually kind of think of it that way. Like, you know, you're you're joining a network, right? You can join the Icon network, you can join the Epic network. You can do some other smaller networks and things out there or, or join an individual resort. You know, the sport overall is healthy, even though Icon and Epic, you know, they're helping grow the sport. And, and yes, you know, they're meaning, they have a very meaningful presence and so forth, but by no means are they the only alternatives for people. But I think of it as a membership in the sense of like, what network do I want to associate with? And the nice thing now is the anticipation of planning a ski trip is exciting. So often people come up to me like, I'm looking at like the website, I'm seeing all the resorts on Icon and you just added Kitzfield and Fortina and Skeeto and Midi. And you know, like I'm thinking like maybe I can do this one or that one. And I'm going to add a trip there to go that one. Like that anticipation, right, is part of the value of buying the pass. And gone is the stress of, well, I'm going to book, you know, I'm going to commit to this one place. I hope they have a good snow year. I mean, somewhere within the Icon network, somewhere within the Epic network, there's going to be plenty of snow, right? You're pre-committing early. And my view is if you self-identify as a skier, which many of us do, uh, then you the, hopefully the next thing you're asking is, well, what network do I want to be part of? And a not inconsequential number of people, they choose all of the above. They actually buy an Epic and an Icon, which great. I think that's wonderful. Well, the cost of a season pass now actually has come down so much that for the you can get two for the price of one, basically. You, from you can, you can. I moved to Vail. I graduated. I mentioned I graduated school in December. I graduated because I was running. I ran out of money for college, and I didn't want to take on loans and those things. And I, and I thought, when would I have a chance to live in the mountains? And so I moved to Vail for that semester. I was wrong. I have a chance to live in the mountains in the future. But you know, I bought a season pass for eleven hundred dollars, and it was restricted. Right, no peak days and those things. For eleven hundred dollars, you know, give or take, buying early, you could buy probably the entry level product for both Epic and Icon. Not inconsequentially different, and that's nearly thirty years ago. I mean, it is a lot more affordable now. Lots of things around skiing are still expensive. Don't get me wrong, but the actual lifting buying a pass is now quite reasonable, certainly relative to what it once was, and provides a tremendous value. So the future value of Altera has a lot to do with the environment. And you and I have both spent the summer moving from one mountain town slash city to another with a lot of smoke. Yeah. We've had massive forest fires out in California and Oregon. Yeah. Fortunately, Tapwood, not in yeah. Colorado. But the amount of snow we're getting, the amount of rain that we're getting is all kind of headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. Are you all doing anything specifically on those issues as it relates to trying to make a dent? So we're, we're trying to be a good corporate citizen around our portfolio. And you know, it takes it takes different forms in different places. So, even the Maldives, we have, we, we literally issue 
an 80 page basically environmental PL each year where you know they're completely carbon neutral and they're doing they've got a wonderful program where they're like recycling all the glass into art and then they're using that art in the property and they're selling that art to customers they're doing the same thing with other recyclable materials you know they're you know they're offsetting their carbon usage by buying you know converting wood stoves to gas stoves and you know, they're probably the furthest ahead of any other place I've seen in the world, it's a real part of their ethos. And people go there in part because they really respect their environmental statement. I think within skiing, I think our partners in Altera Aspen are, are kind of the industry leaders, I think, within this, in terms of being you know, creative in, in their energy sources and commitment to becoming carbon neutral. We're at the Altera, we're still in the formation stages of this business. It's been three, four years now. So we're doing what we can in terms of energy efficiency, looking at more efficient forms of snowmaking, trying to be responsible. We have more we can do and we need to, right? You know, in all of our hotels, we have initiatives you know, throughout our business, not at Altera, at Altera, but more broadly, you know, similar, looking at how do we minimize our core power carbon program? How do we make that part of our ethos? And now the nice thing is, it's not just about it being the right thing for the environment that that's motivating enough, should be, but it's also about resonating with our customers because that's now become important to our customers. And when you'll get businesses to really move, they'll move from being a good corporate citizen to some degree. They'll really move when they think it's in their self-interest. This is now writ large. I like to think we're, we're, that we'd be better, but you know, I'm sure we have our own challenges. But when you start to realize that, hey, actually my customers want this, my employees want this, my communities want this, now all of a sudden you realize I need to do this not just because it's the right thing to do for the world, it's also the right thing for my business. And I think we're in an evolution, as are a lot of companies. You know, we've it's been it's been a train wreck, obviously. Kind of being involved in leisure field or travel for the last eighteen months. So I, I'd be lying if I said that we were able to devote the right amount of attention to this you know, in the middle of COVID. We haven't. But I think the trend you're going to see for us and for our industry overall is more and more focus on sustainable practices, sustainable development, you know, and, and it's not just. And, and it's for us and it's for our, our guests. So I think we're going to make a lot of progress, but it's, I mean, all of us have to do our part. So um, I'm super appreciative of the time and focus that you've given to this. It has been a real pleasure to sit down face to face and actually do this. Um, to everyone who joined our conversation today, thank you so much for dialing in. Thank you, Eric. It was great. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week with another Walker webcast. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Bye.